Welcome to Chalk and Talk, a podcast about education and math. I'm Anna Stocky, a math professor and your host. You're listening to episode five of Chalk and Talk. In this episode, we shift back to Canada, and I'm thrilled to have as my guest Matt Henderson, who is an assistant superintendent of the Seven Oaks School Division in Winnipeg. With his extensive experience in various educational roles, Matt brings valuable insights into the challenges facing students and teachers in the school system. We cover some important topics in this interview. We discuss the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on education, the challenges of online teaching, the pervasive use of cell phones and social media, and ChatGPT and its role in education. The conversation then shifts to math teaching, where Matt shares his thoughts on the challenges facing math teachers and some approaches that have helped teachers in his school division. He also shares some practical advice for new teachers, drawing from his own experiences. Matt is an interesting and passionate individual, and I really appreciate his insights into some of the issues facing educators, and I hope you do too. So without further ado, let's get started. I'm delighted to be joined today by Matt Henderson. He is an assistant superintendent for Seven Oaks School Division here in Winnipeg. He holds a master's degree in education. In addition to his job as superintendent, he is currently completing a PhD in education, and he also teaches some university education classes. Prior to his current position, he was a principal and a teacher. He was also awarded a Governor General History Award for Excellence in Teaching, and that's a Canadian National Teaching Award. He is frequently interviewed, and he writes pieces on education for local media outlets, and he is a frequent book reviewer for the Winnipeg Free Press. Welcome to you, Matt. Welcome to my podcast. Thank you. This is great. Thanks for having me. Glad you could make it. So, Before we get into specifics, maybe you can explain your role for our listeners. You're the assistant superintendent for a school division here in Winnipeg. So can you briefly explain the structure of the school system here? So for example, how many school divisions are there in Winnipeg and and how many schools are in your division, how many students, et cetera? Sure. So no, that's that's a really good question because I think education systems, just in terms of how they're structured vary in Canada because obviously education is a provincial affair as opposed to a federal one. So in Manitoba, we still have elected boards, school boards. So, you know, people, uh, everyday people um, elect the, the boards of school divisions. In Winnipeg, we have about six metro divisions that serve about 100,000 students. Seven Oaks School Division being the one that I'm a part of. We have about 12,000 uh, students in, in about three neighborhoods. So Seven Oaks comprises of the Maples, Garden City, and West Kildonan here in Winnipeg, and a little bit of West St. Paul, which is just outside of the uh, perimeter highway. And, um, and so we have nine elected trustees. Their, their job is to, to ensure that learners have everything they need to, to be successful. Now, where I come in and where my colleagues, you know, there's three assistant superintendents here and, and our superintendent, Brian O'Leary, where we come in and is that we act as management on behalf of the board. And so part of our, our work is, is working with principals and really helping them think 
um, about about how they want to build cultures and structures to support those uh, cultures in in their school and how to really ensure that every single child that comes into one of our classrooms is 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 engaging in powerful learning so my part of my 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 enjoyment and my fun and and, and my privilege is to be able to work with a number of schools. Each of us take a, a family of schools that we liaise with. So I'm in schools every single day, connecting with principals and teachers, and just uh, yeah, just just ensuring that that the needs are being met of all of our kids. So let's talk a bit about your career path. So you're you're an assistant superintendent now, but you were a principal and a teacher before that. So starting off from university, what ab- academic subjects did you specialize in, and why did you decide to become a teacher? That's well. That's it's interesting. I'm I'm one of those people that came to to I'm using air quotes came to education late, so I didn't I didn't become a teacher until my early 30s, and you know I was doing other things in in my 20s and enjoying life and and I think being relatively productive, and contributing to society. Some may argue different, but uh, but the, the it sort of struck me with one critical experience um, that I needed to to really be working with kids. And and I was at the University of Winnipeg. I was actually working at the University of Winnipeg, but still volunteering for CKUW, which is the, the campus radio station there, campus community radio station. And one of the things that I noticed, and in education, we always talk about noticing and wondering. You know, we notice something and then we ask questions about it, as, as academics do at the University of Winnipeg. And, and I noticed that there weren't uh, a lot of kids and community members from the local community that were coming and volunteering at CKUW, that it was mostly folks who have had some connection who didn't live in the Spence neighborhood, in the downtown core, who were accessing the, the radio station. And I was, I was sort of perplexed about that to sort of say, well, why is that? Why is it that community members, you know, newcomers, Indigenous folk aren't feeling that, that this is a space for them? And so, you know, I... I tried to pursue answers to that particular question. And, and, and so what I did as part of that was to start a summer camp at CKUW for, for kids in the neighborhood, you know, accessed a couple grants here and there. And, and what was incredible is that we ran these one-week camps with, with kids who's, you know, second language learners or maybe fifth language learners, you know, refugee students or students uh, who had, in, you know, massive interruptions in their schooling that when they were engaged in creating radio and talking about things that had meaning to them, that their literacy skills dramatically increased. When we had a final product, hey, everybody, we're, we're, on, we're live on Friday. Uh, we have to make radio programming, that there was just sort of this joy and learning that kind of rigor and joy converged uh, when I saw that. And I said, wait a second, I'm really interested in playing around with that notion of rigor and with kids and, and, and engaging them. And so then I ended up going into education uh, and, uh, and was, was teaching. And I've taught grade fives to 12 in, in all sorts of contexts, in French and in English. I've taught maths, I've taught uh, history and in, in the middle years, in the senior years, of course. And then I was asked by Seven Oaks to be the founding principal of the Maples Met School, which is a project-based learning school that, that really leans heavily into internships uh, for learners. We have three MET schools that are part of the big picture learning network uh, globally. And on Tuesdays and Thursdays, kids engage in internship. So they find a mentor uh, who is doing significant uh, work um, that they're passionate about. And then they're essentially apprenticed by adults in, a, in an area that that is of interest to them. 
And so I, we, we started that little school. And then a short while after that, the board asked me to come to the board office and be, be the assistant superintendent for curriculum and programs. So it's been a very short journey. I've only been teaching for about 15 years. But in that, I made some, made some powerful connections and, and have been afforded some pretty tr- tremendous opportunities. At the Met schools, you talked about internships. So can you give me an example? Like what kind of internship would a student be doing? Yeah, and, and, and it's, really, it's really interesting because it, it can vary based on the, you know, I would say the skill, the competencies of the learner. You know, with, with a learner coming into grade nine, we're not suggesting that they're going to be necessarily interning with a chemistry researcher at the University of Manitoba, but that may be something that they work towards. But well, we have internships in, across, our, across the universities here in Winnipeg. We have with game developers, with tradespeople with educators, um, you name it. We have, we've, we've had fo- uh, folks in funeral homes. We've had some of our kids interning in funeral homes. What we try to do, especially in grade nine and 10, is ensure that our learners have a variety of experiences so that they can begin to sort of say, these are the things that I like, that I like to do or I'm interested or I have questions about, and these are the things that I don't like. So that when they come out of high school and they're going to go into post-secondary, they've really had a wide um, range of experiences so that they're, they're better able to make some of those decisions. When, you know, when I came out of high school, I really had no idea how to navigate what opportunities existed out there. And, and, you know, as I said, it took me about 12 or 14 years to figure out, no, I I do want to become a teacher. And so what we're trying to do is just, it's not, it's not a better way of doing high school. It's just a different way of doing high school where we're connecting, um, work in the community, to to the projects and the and the you know the the powerful learning that goes on on Monday Wednesday Friday as well. So, I thought that maybe today we could talk about some particular challenges that are impacting education at the moment, and I'm sure you have a lot of insights into these things. So I thought you're a perfect person to ask about these types of things. So the big one is uh, COVID nineteen pandemic and the impact on education, and I've read a fair bit about this. And so to maybe just tell the listeners about what how things went here, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. So I think in about March 2020, K-12 schools were moved online, and most of them stayed that way for that academic year. And then the following school year, there were varying school schedules. So for instance, some high school students were going part-time or every other day. I think the young, younger children were maybe going regularly, though. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. But at the same time, lots of, of things happened, like school clubs and sports, et cetera, were canceled in a lot of cases. And this year, things are pretty much back to normal. But, you know, there definitely were disruptions to education. And some of the studies I've read recently, so for example, one in, in Nature Human Behavior, they looked at the impact in several countries, and it was estimated that Children lost about 35% of a normal school year's worth of learning, which is actually a lot. So with the learning loss greatest actually in math is what I have read. And obviously worse for students who were already struggling or from low socioeconomic backgrounds. So I'm just kind of wondering what your observations have been in your division and what kind of impacts you've seen. Yeah, and and no, that's a great question. I think it's something that we still need to be thinking about. We're looking at some of our data right now. You know, even though people say the pandemic's over, it's not really over. The restrictions are are, are gone, but we're still dealing with people being sick and kids being away and teacher shortages. And 
Um, but we're also still dealing with the ramifications of kids not being in school, of looking at screens, of, like you said, all those things on the periphery. So the extracurriculars, the arts programming, the sports, which for many kids is the reason why they come to school. And, and, and we know from the research that the longer kids are in school just in a day has dramatic impacts on, on their future. So um, we're still noticing that, that many of our students are struggling not only just emotionally, but I think mentally and cognitively from, from that time. One of the things that, you know, in the last couple of years, I had a, I had a big sort of a bit of a noticing or a hunch that, you know, a lot of our learners, particularly those in grade one, two, uh, grade three, who had school interruptions probably would be struggling um, academically. And I don't think that was a huge leap to have that kind of hunch, but I, we needed some data to kind of take a look at that. So we um, we did a, a light sampling of kids in grade two, two to, to eight, particularly as it related to mathematics. And we noticed right away that, that our learners were struggling. And it, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take a, a genius to figure out why, that for learners who, who can't read very well or just learning how to read and write, to be able to, to learn online on Zoom with 25 other kids is, is, is impossible. And maybe it worked for, for some kids who are in certain households, but, but it, it, it just didn't work for, for those kids. I mean, it's hard enough being a, a grade two teacher in person, and I have all the respect for folks who teach grade two, but to do that online is just outrageous. And so we started to notice that through that, that data collection that our, that our learners were struggling, but we also knew just some, through some data collection and literacy that that, that that same age group was struggling as well. But then in some of our survey work, we were seeing uh, middle year students saying, you know, I don't feel connected to school. I have increased anxiety. You know, I, 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 I'm not really engaged anymore because for, for many of those kids, those, that school connection was lost. And we know that if they don't have a school connection, then it's harder for them to, to think deeply in a classroom. And if they're not thinking, they're not learning. And, uh, and so we've taken some, some, some pretty bold steps, I would say, in the last two years to really mitigate that. And as you said, to ensure that our learners have the confidence particularly as it relates to, you know, in this conversation around mathematics, the confidence, but also the competencies to really see themselves as mathematicians and say, no, like I, I, I've fallen in love with maths or I've fallen, I, I, I'm thinking like a scientist or I can think like a historian. I feel that these, these things matter to me. And so that's where, that's where we really started to make significant moves is how is it that we can really stoke the fires of curiosity and passion in, in these areas and uh, and that's that's where our professional development has has been geared. But yeah, no, I think this is this is something that we really need to talk about. Are the impacts of of COVID nineteen because I think they'll be with us for a number of years. I think so too. And I mean, I'm not surprised that the gap would be worse in math. Probably one of the reasons is that a lot of parents can't help their kids with math. It's easier to sit down with your child and read. But a lot of times the parents aren't able to do the math themselves, particularly at the high school level. And so it would be really rough on kids. And this is anecdotal, but my colleagues are saying that students are struggling this year in university more than they have in the past. And it was hard on us, too. We actually were online for two years. 
which isn't a place I wanted to be in. I mean, I wanted to be teaching my students in person. And my students are 17, 18, and they were struggling. And a lot of it is, is just even being around your peers. And that's, that's a huge thing for young people. They need to be with their group of peers and, and talking to each other and experiencing school collectively. So one thing we found out, though, is, is how online learning goes. And, you know, there were some good things and, and some bad things. But I'm curious, what were the biggest challenges for educators for teachers in trying to deliver classes to their students online. Well, I mean, how long is this podcast? I mean, I, like even even for me, you know, I was teaching at the University of Winnipeg and having to go online. And I, you know, I would say that I'm technically proficient at at, at, at using technology, but but it, it wasn't the same, right? I mean, to your, you're an educator, I'm an educator. Part of the thing that we rely on is that that minute by minute feedback we can give to learners to push their thinking and learning forward, but also the feedback that they give to us so we can say, oh, wait a second, this isn't working, I need to change what I do. And there's so many ways we do that in a classroom when we're in person, where we're, we're, we're watching the eyes of the students, we're watching the, the posture, the hoodies are up, or you know, if, if I'm bombing a, a, a particular lesson that I've designed and I see that you know, there's frustration or there's disengagement. That's not on the students. That's on me. So I have to, I have to, you know, rejig what I'm doing online. I think that's, it, it became very, very hard to do that. And I think, you know, to your, to your question about what were some of the greatest challenges, I think it depends K to 12. The challenges for a kindergarten teacher, I think were different from say a grade 12 English language arts teacher where, you know, there, I don't, I think they're equally significant challenges, but just different in, the, in their own right. You know, part of the things that we invested a tremendous amount of time in just getting teachers up to speed on, okay, how might we do things online? How might we kind of hack this so that we're able to have one-on-one -on -one time with kids and families to provide the supports, sending books home, sending Chromebooks home, sending everything, because we, re we know that it, you know, we're all in the same storm, as they say, but we weren't in the same boat. And so making sure that as best as possible, we could try to address the, the inequities that exist in our society. And I think that was probably the, the, the greatest challenge if we're looking at K to 12 is some students being able to engage and others just not having, whether that was a technical, the technical ability or simply that they're in an apartment with, you know, a two bedroom apartment with a whole bunch of family members and there's just no alone space. And, um, and so I think that was the, the greatest challenge. Kids, we know what schools do. Schools create community. Schools create relationship for uh, kids. Schools create opportunity. And when you pull the plug out of that, there's a, there's a real, there's a significant gap in how kids sort of engage with other kids and with healthy adults. And, uh, and so I think, you know, the the lack of relationship the the lack of ability to provide feedback the the lack of equitable opportunities to learn were probably the the greatest challenges and i know for lots of teachers being at home trying to teach when they have their own kids was was equally you know i was trying to do that for a little bit and it was just an impossibility and so there was i mean we could probably write several volumes on the challenges 
pandemics present to educators for the next pandemic that comes along. But let's hope that doesn't happen too soon. So do you think, though, that there's any place for online learning in K-12 education? Like, do you think there are some benefits to K- to online education? Well, I, yeah, I, I think so. You know, and, and I've been I've been a little bit outspoken about the province of Manitoba education's plan right now which hasn't been fleshed out. So I, I have concerns around that. Like if, if we're going to do it, let's do it well. And so, for instance, there are all sorts of rural and northern communities where there are teacher shortages, where there, there are transient teachers, where they, don't, they can't offer the same robust programming that you can in Winnipeg. But that takes significant connectivity within those communities. And also, you know, part of the, what's successful about online or has been in different pockets of online learning is when you can create a synchronous community where there's larger groups and smaller groups. And some people become quite effective at, at that. And so it's not just asynchronous. You can't ask a 15 or 16-year-old kid to do an asynchronous course by themselves without support, devoid of community. And so I think if, we, if, if we're really interested in doing it right, what's the current infrastructure, and maybe that's hydro, um, that can allow for robust connectivity in the north where we can provide meaningful, synchronous, intentionally designed experiences so that kids are actually learning and not just going through the motions of, of an asynchronous course submitting things. And then, you know, we all know the curve of forgetting. If they never go back to it, it's gone. And so... You know, to the the short my short answer to that is, if we're going to do it, let's do it right, but let's ensure that it's impacting the kids that need it the most. And you and I are on the same page about this. I think that it needs to be synchronous, and at least in mathematics, I don't tend to speak for other subjects because I don't teach other subjects. I only teach mathematics. But for instance, when I was online, and and most of our department, we all taught synchronously. Because in math, you really do need to be going through the problems with the students. You need The students need to be able to stop you and ask questions. And there needs to be participation in, in the class. So I think you make a good point, though. There, there probably are some communities where students may not have access to courses like pre-calculus. And if you don't have an opportunity to take pre-calculus, you won't be able to take calculus, which basically shuts you out of all sorts of things like engineering and, and economics and sciences. So, so if they could get that right, it actually maybe could be beneficial because realistically, it's probably better for the students to stay with their families when they're young and have access to the courses if we can find a way to get the courses there in a good way. Absolutely. And, you know, when we're, you know, if we look at public education and one of its purposes is to ensure that learners have the means to a decent life, and we can argue back and forth what we mean by a decent life, but, you know, leisure time, you know, fulfillment, um, uh, security, uh, you know, housing, uh, you know, um, and so, you know, or do they have the opportunity to engage in the polis in, in, in meaningful ways? then I think once we start closing those doors, whether it's pre-calculus or whatever it is, then we begin to diminish the opportunities for kids. And so I think that's it. When we, when we talk about equity, it's ensuring that um, all learners have access to, in this case, public education and, and, and what it involves. I mean, we, let's not even get into the issue that many students up north have to fly to Winnipeg and leave their home communities in a foreign place 
in in often large high schools, and that's just that, that's a travesty unto unto itself. But yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's a, I mean, and I would even say that there are rural communities in in other parts of Manitoba, whether it's you know southern Manitoba, where they simply don't have access to maybe the rich course offerings that we have in in the metro area, but. How is it that we design and support that with faculty and teachers and, and who know really how to design powerful experiences where they now they're bringing experts from all over the world to engage with their learners and they're designing powerful prototypes you know, to address this particular problem. That's, that's the magic. That's the key. But, but I don't think we're there yet in Manitoba. So... I'd like to talk a bit about cell phones and social media, whether you have some opinions on that. You would know more about it than I do in terms of very young people. I certainly have experienced this as a university teacher that teaches 17, 18-year-olds. So cell phones and social media and the impact on learning or just the impact on young people in general, I have heard some reports that Social media can increase the risk of depression, anxiety, cyberbullying. And then in a classroom setting, there's also the possible distraction element and impact on learning. So do you have any opinions on this? And what are your thoughts on cell phones in schools? Do you think schools have a role to play in limiting cell phone use or social media use? Yeah, well, and it's funny. Like, Do you want me to put my parent hat on now? As well, because I've I've got it a both, fourteen both. I've got a fourteen year old daughter who now has a phone and oh boy I mean I I think like one of the interesting things with with my own child is that we we had to engage in a critical conversation about with her about this is the most powerful device ever created by our species and we're giving it to you a fourteen year old who whose brain hasn't fully developed and yet we've given you all these tools and one of the things. And I'm fortunate to have a great partner and we have a wonderful relationship. Not that it's been easy dealing with the cell phone issue is that we've actually had to parent through this and, and sort of trial and error. But what we've done is, you know, there are limitations as parents that I can put on the, on the phone. There, there, you know, there are certain things that I can say, nope, you can't use it during these times and we're going to limit what you can use at specific times. And, um, and you, you know, you can't have this particular app. If you want, if you want to ha- still have the phone in, and what I've been doing is just increasingly having uh, more and more conversations with parents in our school division about that, about like how do you enter into a conversation where you're not a- alienating the child and say you can't, no, I'm banning the phone, I'm taking the phone, because we know when, when even when we were kids, when somebody took something away from us, uh, that wasn't always a, a positive way to 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 deal with the particular situation, but but I think you know. School divisions or schools or even parents saying, no, we're going to take them away, um, probably won't have the effect that we want. And, and more so is how is it that we can educate kids on what are, what are all the possibilities that these little devices offer us, but when is it appropriate to use them? When is it appropriate to put them away, to turn them off, to not have them in our bedrooms? When we're, you know, at a uni- in a university lecture, we're, when... Why is it inappropriate to text while someone is speaking, even if we think that they can't see or, 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 or whatever that is? Similarly, in a middle school, why, why would we want to ensure that we're only saying positive things to people online instead of uh, negative things? And I think, you know, as, as a public school division, that's what we've endeavored to do is how is it that we can teach learners to use these 
devices as best as we can because the cat's out of the bag. I mean, the, the horse has left the barn. They're, they're there. And try telling a teen, oh, I'm not, you know, if you're a parent, I'm not going to get you a phone even though all your friends have one. That's not going to go very well for you, I don't think. So I think part of, part of our mission has to be how do we use uh, these little uh, technological marvels uh, appropriately, safely, uh, productively to create just and healthy societies. I mean, many adults don't use them. I mean, most adults probably don't use them appropriately. And so I think it's, uh, we're compelled to do that in the K-12 system. I was just in an airport you know, sitting in a lounge and every single person is looking at their screen. Nobody's reading a book anymore. Nobody's talking to each other. And so I think as a society, we really have to rethink sort of our addiction to these little devices. And it's, I think it's impossible to ask our young people to, to not engage with them when all they see are like, what do they see the adults modeling all the time is that we're addicted to these things. So I think, I think fundamentally what we have to do, and same thing with chat, uh, you know, with the AI, chat GPT, and how is it that we, we teach learners to use these for good and, and, and not evil? We teach kids how to use scissors. We teach them how to use protractors and compasses. We teach them how to use power tools really, really safely. I think we can do it with technology as well. In my university classes, and I generally teach first-year calculus, and it's always kind of surprising to me how addicted students are to their phones. And actually, I have a no cell phone policy in my class, and they're fine with that. And in fact, they probably appreciate it. So I just tell them, you know what, we're going to be learning calculus and I don't want you to be distracted. I'm not here on my phone, so you shouldn't be here on there on your phone either. And yeah, that's just how I've done it. And, and it's worked fairly well for me, but I don't have to teach them for an entire day and they're 18. But they, they, can, they can also be marvelous tools. You know, when I would take my, you know, as a high school history teacher, we would go out into the field all the time. And so we were investigating the Alexander docks or looking at the Arlington Street Bridge and say, hey, take a photo of this. Now I want you to write a quick note about this. And, you know, and so they can be marvelous tools when the, when learners are educated on how and when to use them. And I think that's something that we really need to engage in in our society is is really around that education. We've lost a bit of that, I think. And you mentioned chat GPT. And so I'm curious what you think about chat GPT. I mean, We've dealt with these types of things in, in math for a very long time. So it, this is nothing new. You know, we've had Wolfram Alpha and Symbolab and, and the various things that, that students use to, to try and do their math homework, which in some instances can be helpful and in some instances isn't helpful. So, but chat GPT is a whole new level. And I would imagine, you know, for someone who, who has taught history, for example, Chat GPT could literally write you an essay. So, how are you dealing with that sort of thing in the classroom? Yeah, well, and if, I mean, first, I think it's it's. I find it interesting that the tech industry. There's many people saying, "Can we put a pause on AI development right now?" Because things are getting like when Chat GPT came out, it was like, "Oh, cool! I can make a rap about this," you know, in a Shakespearean voice, or I can it can write a little bit of code for me, or it can do. Isn't that quaint? Or I can have it do a, a lesson plan as a teacher, and and then I can you know bring other teachers together and we can judge how effective this lesson might be. But I think as things are ramping up, um, you know there there were just there are thousands of AI type of bots and applications that are coming out 
every day. And I think, I think like for me, it goes beyond education. I think there, there may, we may need to pause about to what degree are we comfortable with artificial intelligence just invading, you know, our, 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 the human condition. And I, I don't think we're, we have much consensus right now. So I would just put that out there, you know, in, in terms of, in terms of education, you know, the conversations I have with teachers is around if learners are able to use chat uh, GPT to submit an assignment, maybe that means that, um, that that's too simplistic of a thinking task. Not to say that AI is, it can't, can't learn to think, but I, there are certain th- ways that humans can think that are a little bit different. And so that's really been interesting. You know, I'm teaching a class right now with a whole bunch of fantastic teachers. And part of that is to sort of say, how do we design so that the final product or what, what learners are really thinking and pushing can't actually be replicated or can't be plagiarized or can't be uh, submitted uh, or, or just sort of bought offline? There, I mean, forget AI. There's all sorts of companies that you can go online now and buy papers from. It's really quite terrible. And, and my, I just looked at one the other day and I was like, oh my goodness, this is like pe- the people who are writing papers for other people are so unethical that it, it, was, it was really quite disheartening. But, but I think it provides us with an opportunity to sort of say, okay, if this exists, then how do we, how do we adjust? What are our teacher moves so that we're actually able to assess what the learner has learned, what they can do, and then push their learning even forward? I mean, one of the interesting things that I did when, when ChatGPT first came out is that I put my dissertation topic in and it, it had no idea. It, like, it couldn't, because it was just so, that I was using a, a specific archive that is just not online and it had no idea really, how, like it spat something out, but it wasn't even close. And so part of my challenge would be for educators is, okay, well, how do we design that then so that students are creating something anew and something that has meaning to them that can't necessarily be replicated. And, I, you know, in mathematics, that might be different, but, but I think for, for most domains, uh, we, can be, we can be pretty creative. And you mentioned that you put in your thesis dissertation and it had no clue. So I actually typed into chat GPT this morning, who is Anna Stocky? And this is the response. Anna Stocky is a mathematician and a professor at the University of Winnipeg in Canada. That's true, right? Sure. She earned her PhD in mathematics from the University of California, Los Angeles. This is absolutely not true. Okay. Right? I went to <laughs> I went to the University of Alberta. And her research interests include number theory and algebraic geometry. Also not true. Not at oh, all wow. true. And I have a website that has all, all of my credentials on it. It could have just grabbed the information from the website. So I think, yeah, it seems to, it will insist on giving an answer that seems like it could be correct, but you have to be very careful with it. Well, one of the things that, you know, the example I used the other day uh, with some teachers, some history teachers, we were just kind of talking about chat GPT and and AI. And and I said, uh, well, you know, how is it that we can low tech this in some ways when we get kids really thinking, when we want them to think historically. So when I ask a learner, hey, who's the most significant person in your life? Well, artificial intelligence can't answer that for them. Right now, that learner has to think, well, who is the most? So it might be their auntie, it might be their grandmother, it might be their mom. And then when you ask them, well, what criteria did you use to make that determination? 
And when we use criterial thinking, we're thinking critically. And then so now we've got them thinking and there's no tech involved. And we might, we might later say, okay, well, um, here's a $5 bill, which has Laurier on it. You know, the, the, the Mint is thinking about replacing Laurier with somebody else. And, you know, if you go to the Mint's website, there's, there's a whole bunch of nominees for that. But I might ask a child, well, who do you think should be the, the person on the $5 bill and why? What's the criteria that you've used for that? In that moment, they may have to think and use their, their previous uh, schema and their experience and maybe talking with each other to really develop a response to that, but also the, the, the criteria that they used to come to that particular judgment. That can, like In my books, that type of discussion, that type of experience where students are asked to think deeply are, are, are those experiences that, that get seared into their brain. And as educators, our job is to sear things into the minds of learners forever. And, and that's the task that I bring to classrooms every day is how is it that what I do today will be with these uh, learners for the rest of their lives? Now, can I be successful all the time? No, of course not. That's the whole thing about teaching is that where children don't learn what we teach them. If they did, they would all get 100% all the time. But I, but I think that's where we have to really start thinking is in our daily design, whether it's at the post-secondary or it's in the K-12 system, are we providing opportunities and experiences for, for, for learners to think in all sorts of domains, across domains, using in transdisciplinary, transdisciplinary ways, meaningful ways to think deeply about the, the universe, their role within that universe, and to, to really begin asking significant questions. So let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk a bit about math teaching and that sort of thing. So first of all, I just wanted to ask, um, in terms of hiring teachers, who hires teachers? Is that principals or, or superintendents? Well, at the end of the day, it's the board. It's the board of trustees who approves all, all, all hirings. You know, I think um, in, uh, in our school division, we ask principals to interview candidates and that they make recommendations to the board, and then the, the, the board approves that. But certainly principals, you know, for instance, at the, at the University of Winnipeg, we get our principals to interview all candidates who, who are interested in, in, in coming to Seven Oaks to not only provide us with some insight, but to provide, you know, experience, an interview experience for, for teacher candidates. But, but, but principals, you know, when, when, they, when they need a, a teacher in their schools, they will interview candidates and then they'll make a recommendation to the board and the board will, will approve that. So that's, that's a bit of the process. And, and, and we, you know, as a, as a team of superintendents, we really trust our principals to, to get the right people in their school that, that really, because they know their schools and they know, they know what that big puzzle piece is. And then in terms of math background, so a high school math teacher normally has maybe a math degree at least, right? Absolutely. And then, yeah. And then the elementary and middle school teachers, they're more generalist though, right? They teach all the subjects. So they don't necessarily, some of them might have math backgrounds. Yeah, no, and, that, and that's, that's and, and in Seven Oaks, our middle years, like we, we have a pure middle years philosophy, which means, you know, in grade six to eight, the, the kids are with one teacher to provide them with, with those opportunities to kind of blur the lines between domains. Sometimes the dom the, those domains are straight up. Like, hey, today we're learning about, you know, the properties of matter. And, and we can't necessarily read, you know, read fiction about that today. Or today we really have to really focus on our foundational skills around mathematics. 
And so those, there are clear boundaries around that. But there are times where just like adults, just, you know, when you and I work, we're blending all sorts of skills and competencies together. And we want to give learners opportunities to do that. So for us, yeah, K to eight, um, there, are, there are generalists. And, and some of them may have some, some, one of their majors or minors might be mathematics, but it, but it may not. So what are some of the biggest challenges facing teachers in your division when it comes to teaching math? Well, I think one of the things that we've just gotten some feedback around, I think one of the big ones is around just a, a teacher's own experience with mathematics when they were a learner. You know, some some of them might have experienced uh, some negative negative things that that have reduced their confidence and and so what we've done, particularly around mitigating the effects of COVID, is really try to provide deep, rich opportunities for particularly our K-8 teachers to watch each other teach, to have guests come in and observe. And, and, and really, because we know that teachers get better by watching each other teach and giving each other feedback. And, then, and we just see that pump up the confidence in folks. And uh, as opposed to just kind of sitting around and talking about teaching, I guess that serves some function, but we've really seen a, it's really important for teachers to get into each other's classrooms and, and watch, observe, and then the next person will do the same lesson in another classroom, watch, observe. And it's a little bit of you know, Japanese lesson study where we see some, some, some real impacts on teacher practice, ergo, in, te- in, in learner achievement and accomplishment. And so I would say, you know, com- confidence is, 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 a, is a big one. One of the things that we've also done is we've just, where we've seen some improvements in achievement and, and student accomplishment in mathematics is just adding in a, a little bit more around mathematics, taking a look at the schedule. You know, if mathematics and some, some of the research points to this is a, is a significant predictor of later school success, you know, adding a little bit more time in a six-day cycle or in a day um, you know, not to suggest that physical education is important and French and all these other things, uh, nothing's competing, but, to, but if we're serious about this, extending that by a little bit. And then I would think that just, you know, for, for some folks who are, who are finding it challenging, how does sequence thing, like what, what's the connection between significant ideas in mathematics? And how is it that we design for that sequencing? How do these things all fit? You know, what, I, I was sitting with a teacher a while ago and, you know, they were, we, we were looking at some of the data and uh, they said, you know, I just don't even know where to start because there's so much, there's so much in the curriculum. How do you make a decision? And then how do you make sure that things are sequenced in a way that, that students are using, you know, one particular competency as a building block for another one and another one and another one. And then you're spiraling back so they don't forget it and, and all those things. And I said, what a beautiful question. This is, this is our professional inquiry then, you know? And so we, we, we engaged in a conversation just around, hey, as a teacher, you need, to have, you, you need to make an ideological and a professional decision about what you're going to include in your math program. So what, what is the data telling you? And so we talked about number sense, foundational skills. We talked about, you know, the relationship between fractions and ratio and percent and decimals. And, and I said, well, wow, you've just basically built sort of the, the uh, math program or the big ideas around a math program that you can begin to really cultivate. So that's, that's been a really um, exciting piece. But I would say, yeah, the, the confidence just in general and some of that, you know, I don't like to use the word math, math trauma because they're like, Trauma, there's people experience real trauma in the world, but negative experiences in math in, in, in one's life, but also the, 
when teachers sort of look at the task in front of them and go, this, this, is, this is a lot, I'm not even sure where, where to begin, that those have been challenges. But I think that's been the joy in the last couple of years in Seven Oaks is that we've been able to bring teachers together to talk about that. We brought in John Mighton from Jump to really work in classrooms. John is here all the time working with teachers in classrooms, really modeling how you build the confidence of learners so that every learner feels that they're a mathematician, where every learner is included, where the hoods come off, where students are jumping and just joyful about mathematics, where we, we've seen fantastic success in that. And, and but, uh, you know, the, the larger piece around that where we've had lots of success is really, you know, K to 12 is really getting uh, teachers in a place where they're able to provide that minute by minute feedback to students to push them along. And we always use the analogies of sports and the arts, right? When you're, when you're coaching a child, you're, you're, you're constantly tweaking and, and giving them, you know, what if we did it this, this time? And, uh, and then the final product might be a game, right? Um, where, where that might be the performance, but you're always tweaking. You're always providing, um, uh, feedback to push, to push their, their thinking forward. Similarly in music, it's the same thing. You take little bits, little pieces. What if we did this? Oh, you know, if you're learning to play cello, make sure you're holding your bow this way. What about that? Let's listen to the music. Let's go to the symphony. But we're constantly providing feedback to the learners to push them forward, but allowing them to see the big picture as well. And so that's been, that's been something that we brought into our math our math professional development as well, as well as are we providing learners with that formative feedback that we know is, is so important. And uh, formative feedback, meaning this is different from summative feedback. Formative feedback is the type that tells you what the students are missing, correct? It, tell, it tells what the students are missing, but it also tells me what I'm missing as the teacher, right? And, and, it, and it's, pushing, it's pushing their thinking further and it's pushing uh, there, therefore, it's pushing their learning further, and it and it could be whiteboards, and you know, a simple whiteboard. Hey, does everybody have the right? Oh, 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 let me go over to you, and let's suggest you. You clearly didn't get it, which is fundamentally different than summative. Absolutely. How do you measure and assess student learning? So uh, now I'm asking more about summative feedback. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, that's an interesting. Th- th- you know, when you say how do you measure a student learning? Th- I mean, that's formative for me. Where, you know, like I'm teaching a course right now and, and the learners who are our teachers um, are responding to prompts in a discussion and I'm providing them feedback around some of the things that they're thinking about as they're trying to theorize, uh, you know, different things in education. And, and so I'm providing them with feedback, but I, I can also say, hey, wait a second, I can see that, and I write this, I can see that you've understood this. I can see that you're applying this particular, or you've theorized this, leaning on these texts. That's really fascinating. Have you thought about this? So even in formative assessment, that minute by minute, I'm assessing student learning. But if we're talking about summative assessment, we're really, for, in, in my opinion, we are fundamentally looking at how effective is, is a system right? Or how effective is a school or how effective is a teacher in a particular classroom? If we're doing a summative assessment, it might be, and they're not bad things, not at all. But if, if we're doing oil dips periodically with, with, with kids to follow them to sort of say, how effective is Seven Oaks School Division? You know, for instance, the, the grade 10 or sorry, the grade 12 uh, as, provincial assessments are really handy for me as an assistant superintendent to have to sort of say, hey, how effective are we uh, with with uh, English language arts and mathematics education 
you know, I, I, you take it with a grain of salt, but it's also, it's important data. And actually what's really interesting about Manitoba is I can see all sorts, I can follow a cohort through uh, early development uh, data, through grade three, four data, through grade seven, eight data, through grade 12. I can watch a cohort go through and, and, and sort of say, okay, what are the things we're doing right as a division? But what are the things that we need to do better at? What do we, what do we need to get better at? And so I think that's where summative assessments are really, really powerful. One of the things that, you know, as a, as a teacher, when I would offer, you know, a, a final exam or something like that in, in a high school context or at the Met School, we would have final exhibitions where learners would basically do a thesis defense four times a year, is that like, that's a reflection on me as the teacher. If a student doesn't do well on that exam uh, or doesn't do well in that exhibition, or if one of your graduate students doesn't do well in their, in their defense, that's a reflection on us. And now, of course, we want students to take, you know, some responsibility for their own learning and all those things. But I think at the end of the day, some of the assessments are more effective for determining the, the effectiveness of systems. But summative assessments can maybe also be formative, though, too, right? So if you're thinking about, is this person going to be prepared to take the next class? Or is this student who just completed pre-calculus 40S, are they going to be prepared to take calculus in university? Sometimes that summative assessment will tell us that. thing that I always get kind of worried about because there's a lot of talk actually in in Manitoba about canceling final exams altogether. And again, I'm I will only speak for mathematics and it's similar in the in the sciences that at university we do tend to give large final exams that are are worth a fair bit, sometimes even 50%. Now whether that's, you know, whether people agree with that or not, you know, that tends to be the way it is across Canada. And so my biggest concern is that we were going to have these students that had no experience writing final exams. And I do think that even the process of preparing for the final exams actually does help students learn and they have something to work towards. So what do you think about that angle? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and like, I don't like to sort of say, you know, education can be so polarizing in many ways where, where there's sort of camps where people sort of say, this is bad or this is good. And, and I, and I, I, I kind of like to say, well, there's probably in many ways, as long as it's not harmful for children, uh, there's probably merit in, in all sorts of things. And, um, but we, ha- we have to think about what is the purpose of a particular tool or a particular thing that we're going to do within the classroom. And so I, you know, I see all sorts of benefits to a, to a final exam, and, but also I can see some drawbacks if it's not designed well, uh, if it's not um, appropriate in terms of the, the impact that it's going to have on learners. I mean, one of the things, to your point, is teachers aren't taught how to create exams. There's no, at, at no point has anybody, I'd, I would argue professors as well, nobody has said this is actually how you make a rigorous, authentic, fair, and transparent final exam. But we, we just do it because we've been through it and we're like, okay, I guess this is how we put an exam together. I mean, it's the same, same thing with multiple choice tests. Multiple choice questions can be really um, powerful in terms of the evidence you're trying to elicit. But I've never been taught how to create a really good multiple choice um, uh, I've never been taught a, a question. And, uh, and so it, it would be the same thing with, with, with exams. But I, like, I, I think more to the point is if I'm an educator, I want to think about, okay, if I'm going to have a final exam, whether that's in history or maybe it's a provincial exam, 
why, why am I doing this? What am I trying to assess? Am I doing it under the conditions that the students have been used to all year? Uh, is it an authentic way of uh, assessing the learner? Is, is sort of saying, hey, this is your final exam and it's worth 30 or 50% and you're going to do it in three hours. Is that fair? We don't do that to adults in the real world. I don't get assessed in three hours. Uh, even for my, my defenses that I've done at graduate work, sure, there's a defense, but I go through a process and there's all sorts of feedback. And for the most part, we, we're pretty confident that we're going to do well uh, because we've, 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 we've had all those checkpoints. So I think, I think we just have to be careful about how we want to use them, uh, like a final exam or any, any high stakes assessment tool so that, so that it's, it actually elicits the evidence that we want. If I would say to your point about if we want to prepare kids for exams at the university level is why don't we offer exam preparation courses that, hey, this is, this is how you're going to, this is an exam, this is how we offer it, as opposed to using the exam as that seminal experience about, hey, you better do this because if you don't do it, you're not going to know how to do it. That seems like a strange way to teach. The, and the last thing I would just say around that, I'm also cautious about sort of if we're putting a whole bunch of our eggs in the summative basket about the mark that students are going to leave with, we know that the research tells us if that students take an exam in June, by September, they've lost most of what, what was on that particular exam. So if, we're, if we know that, and our goal is to ensure that students are prepared to write exams in university, then I think at some point we have to talk about, well, if th then we need to educate kids on how to take exams. That's actually a really good idea. And I actually had Paul Kirshner on earlier, and he talked a bit about space practice. And so your point about the student writes the exam, they, and that's cramming, right? So if, you're, if you cram, cram, cram for an exam, and then you write the exam, you're probably going to forget a lot of that. But if you study in such a way that you're spacing out your practice, then that shouldn't happen. And you're more likely to remember the material for the exam. Absolutely. Well, and, and, and I think to your point, we want to make sure that students remember this forever. There's all sorts of debates around direct, direct instruction, around project-based learning, around inquiry. And blah, 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 blah. As you know, the, the moral of the story around this is, you know, are we providing students with feedback? Are we using what they already know uh, about the world and, and but, you know, capitalizing on that? But are we constantly coming back to um, the knowledge, thinking, and ways of being we want for our learners to sear into their brains and spiraling that, right? So that it becomes seared uh, and that, that they see that it's relevant and they carry that with them. And, and that's, that's, that's the trick and that's the challenge and that's the fun and that's the heartache about teaching is that we, you know, how is it that we, we at the end of the day, that, that the, the kids or the, the adults who are teaching remember this forever and that it's not just a step to something else, but, and, and that they just see, see the value in it. And so I think, I think for me, that's where I get really excited about conversations as it relates to, you know, that might be mathematics, it might be history, it might be all sorts of things, but it's like, hey, before we do, before we schedule a final exam, before we schedule an exhibition, before we do this, before we do that, what are we, what are we actually trying to do here? What are we trying to sear into the minds of these folks? And does this particular assessment tool actually help us? So last question, what advice would you give new teachers? 
I think one of the things that I often tell teachers is, and this is something that I ask myself all the time, and, and I, I go into classes every day. Sometimes a teacher will say, Matt, can you come in and, and, do, and show me this or this or that, or, or whether it's at the university level. Ask yourself this particular question at the end of the day. Were the learners thinking about the things I wanted them to think about? And did I cause learning? And that's a little bit of formative assessment for ourselves. So a bit of a re reflection piece is at the end of the day, when you're exhausted, kids are gone, you're sitting there, you're like, what happened today? But, you know, are, were the learners thinking about the things I wanted them to think about? Because if they weren't thinking and they weren't thinking about those things, they're certainly not learning. But also, you know, if they did learn, did I cause that learning and how so? And for me, that's been effective because then I can go back and say, well, if it's no to both of those questions, then I got I My task tonight is to redesign and to think specifically about what are those experiences? What are the, what's the text, which is the world? What are all those things that I'm going to bring into the design of this learning experience that's going to ignite them, that's going to excite them, but also so that I can begin to sear the knowledge, skills, and ways of being into their minds. And so that, that, that would, that, I mean, it's a bit daunting, but though, that, that would be the, the advice that I would give to myself at the beginning of my career. Well, I think that's great advice. So thank you for that. And thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, likewise. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks, Anna. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Chalk and Talk. Please go ahead and follow on your favorite podcast app so you can get new episodes delivered as they become available. You can follow me on Twitter for notifications or check out my website, anastocky.com, for more information. This podcast received funding through a University of Winnipeg Knowledge Mobilization and Community Impact Grant funded through the Anthony Swaty Knowledge Impact Fund.